Just a quick message before the episode gets underway. The Aurora Renewables Summit London is returning on the afternoon of Wednesday the 26th of June. Book your ticket now to hear from leading experts in the energy industry as they assess the opportunities and challenges within the UK and the wider European renewable sector. You will also benefit from unparalleled networking opportunities. We look forward to seeing you there. Marginal pricing or opaque cleared or uniform pricing, as it's sometimes called, is not an artificial way of organizing electricity markets. It's really the natural way of how prices are formed, of how prices emerge in free economies, in all markets, in all commodities. You could say that commodities price on the margin and so does electricity. Hello and welcome to Energy Unplugged by Aurora. This podcast features various experts from Aurora having in-depth conversations with key industry leaders, policymakers and academics from all over the world. It explores the hottest topics across the energy market and gives a unique perspective on major energy issues. Welcome to a special episode of our Energy Unplugged podcast. My name is Hans König. I lead the Berlin office of Aurora. And I'm being joined today by two of the leading experts on power market design in Europe today, uh, Leon Hilt and Rob Gross. Hi, Leon. Hi, Hans. And hi, Rob. Hello, Hans. Real pleasure to have you on the show. So to briefly introduce our guests, uh, Leon Hilt uh, is a professor of energy policy uh, at the Hergy School here in Berlin. He's one of the leading thinkers on power market design in Europe. Uh, he holds a PhD from Technical University of Berlin, focusing on the economics of wind and solar variability, and is also director of his own consulting firm, Neon, uh, with which we as Aurora collaborate every now and then in the sense of full disclosure and full transparency. Um, Rob Gross um, is the director of UKIRK, uh, the UK Energy Research Center, and also a professor of energy policy at Imperial College in London. He's an authority on power market design in Great Britain uh, and holds a PhD in energy and environment policy also from Imperial College. So uh, two very distinguished guests. We are very fortunate they managed to find uh, the time in their busy schedules to join us on the pod today. To set the scene um, a little bit, I would like to ask Leon um, to take us through what is going on in uh, European power markets right now and uh, where where we even stand and why we're having a discussion about market design? I, I guess the starting point is that wholesale market prices uh, going crazy. Um, and so, so roughly speaking, the sort of the most important um, market in, in Germany, the frontier uh, future market that is electricity to be delivered during the course of the next year, now stands at 560 euros per megawatt hour, and that compares to a long-term average of something like 40 euros per megawatt hour. Even compared to the most crazy times we all can remember, the commodity frenzy of 2008, uh, and, and adjusting for inflation back then, the very same price was only slightly above 100 euros. So we are five times above the all-time high, and that of course has tremendous impacts, not only for firms that become uncompetitive, but also for individual citizens and households um, where the social impact will be very, very severe. Why are power prices so high? Is this just chance? Is this just speculation? Or why are we seeing these high prices? There's a few factors, but certainly the most important factor is the high gas price that is triggered by the supply interruption um, caused uh, by, by Vladimir Putin, essentially, and, and, and Gazprom, the, who stopped delivering um, European markets. And those high gas prices trigger then down to high electricity prices. 
Um, there's a few secondary factors in electricity, in particular, the, the low availability of French nuclear uh, for a, a number of reasons, as well as the massive droughts that um, diminishes, diminishes hydroelectricity genera generation across Southern Europe, but also causes trouble in coal delivery in, uh, in countries such as Germany, uh, where, where coal is often shipped um, in, in, in barges uh, through the River Rhine. Okay, so a lot of it is gas, but there's also other drivers such as the French, uh, the French nuclear outages, uh, shipping, and so forth. Are the topics the same in the UK or in the in the, in the British market, Rob? Or, or are there any peculiar features uh, to, to to Great Britain? No, I don't. I mean, there's nothing. Uh, we don't have very much hydro. Uh, we we do have some 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 nuclear providing uh, various 12, 15, up to about twenty percent of our of our generation mix. Um, but as as with uh, mainland Europe, um, the, the predominant factor that's driving the price increases, and we've, we've seen prices increase through the course of last autumn uh, 500% uh, and went up to a kind of six-fold increase uh, early early this year. Um, and that's because the, the price-setting uh, generation plant on the GB system is, is the gas-fired GGTs. Uh, they don't actually provide the majority of our energy on an annual basis. They provide something like 40%, uh, with something like 60% coming from a mixture of um, imports, renewables, and nuclear. Uh, but they are the marginal plant. We'll come on to explain, talk about what that means. Uh, they set the price. And um, in my view, the, the, the gas price crisis is over, uh, completely overriding all other factors. Uh, in terms of uh, what's happening with the price of electricity at the moment. Okay, interesting. So, uh, so gas prices really dominate everything. Um, so, why are we even having a debate about market design then? Because uh, we've had a market design that's delivered pretty low prices, um, all things considered, for most of the past decade in in, in the GB market in in the continental European markets. Um, and the, the market design didn't change, right? All, all that changes is that gas prices got more expensive. Uh, so why is this triggering a debate um, about, um, about changing the market design? I think there's, there's two things that I would say in response to that. The first thing is um, we were having a debate in many countries about the long-term electricity market design fundamentals before this crisis blew up. Uh, the reason that that conversation, we were having that debate um, is, is because of the increasing share of variable renewables um, and, and the, the different characteristics that those, those types of generation have and, and, and the impact that that has on, on price formation in markets. Uh, in particular, the, the, the tendency for wind farms, for example, for their outputs to correlate. So on a windy day, prices tend to be low and on a not very windy day, prices tend to be high. That can affect the uh, investment case for renewables, uh, and it can affect what happens with the balance of plants. So that's the, the, the plant that kind of flex gas generators, for example, to, to, to compensate for the, the variation in the output of those renewables and our carbon aspirations. You know, across Europe and in many other countries, we, we're, we're, we're hoping great things for renewables in the next 20 years. Um, and so it's important that the investment case for renewables stacks up. I know this is something that Aurora have Paid attention to in some of your um, your thought pieces, uh, you know how do we ensure that investors are attracted into these new forms of technology? We know that they can deliver electricity now at low levelized costs, uh, but we also know that their system costs 
and uh, their characteristics mean that the investment case might be a bit risky. So we were we were having this we were having this conversation already in many uh, parts of the world, and this was overlaid by uh, this 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 crisis that actually emerged during last year as the COVID lockdowns ended and uh, supply had been restricted in some countries of oil and gas. There's a kind of boom and bust cycle there with demand uh, racing away, supply not keeping up, but also the actions of, of the Russian government and the, uh, and then subsequently the, 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 the war in Ukraine. And I think many countries, certainly in the, in, in the British context, and we've seen this in a number of other European countries, people are quite legitimately asking the question, okay, why are we paying wind farms or nuclear power stations hundreds of pounds per megawatt hour when it seemed as if they were perfectly profitable a few months ago being paid 50 pounds or 60 euros or 50 euros it's the same per megawatt hour and so that i think is the origins of of this debate okay so it's concerns about equity about fairness uh, with regards to uh, some very high returns uh, being made by uh, by renewable generators um, in particular um, at the moment you would say Uh, Leon, would you concur with that? Or uh, is there anything else you would add? I think that's very much the same debate we're having in Berlin, in, in Brussels, in, in Paris and elsewhere. So essentially, it's the very high cost to electricity and, and gas consumers that in the case of electricity comes along with certain generators. It's not only renewables, right? But but it's 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 certain generators that, that are earning high profits. We will talk about these profits uh, in the following and, and maybe profits aren't that high as many people believe. But still, in, in some cases, they are, and that's perceived as unfair. And that, of course, doesn't go down well with uh, citizens and policymakers. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I think I'd probably will, I'd qualify that a little bit because um, I think in, certainly in the GB context, it's not necessarily focused on fairness. I think you know there is a concern about excess rents and, and particularly where some of the renewables get a, get a subsidy on top of the wholesale price which made sense when the wholesale price was low and renewables were, were more expensive and seems to make less sense now. But actually, I think that um, governments are also genuinely, desperately looking for things that they might do quickly to reduce the burden of these very high prices. Um, they don't see a way to do anything about the input prices, the costs of uh, gas, they do see the potential maybe to do something to reduce electricity prices. Um, and so they're looking very seriously at whether or not that's possible, the fairness aspects of it. In inverted commas for uh, our listeners, because you can't see me gesticulating, we can debate. Okay, great. Yeah, so so it's, it's, it's very high price to consumers uh, um, and governments looking for solutions to that um, and potentially fairness coming uh, coming coming together okay um, so before we go into a market design um, uh, the current market design debate and, uh, and and what proposals are on the table to change that um, I would like to um, talk a little bit, little bit history and theory uh, um, and, and explain why we ended up uh, with uh, with today's market design power market design, where we have the merit order, where we have the most expensive plant that is required to meet demand, uh, setting the price for everyone um, in the first place. Um, Rob, could you take us through how things developed over the past decades and years and, and how we ended up where we are? 
Certainly, I, I will do that. I'll, I'll try and keep it fairly brief uh, and, and not have too much of a history lesson. Um, but if, if you if you look back over the, the history of electricity markets around the world, um, so the first thing to say is if you go back mm, 30 years or so, uh, they weren't markets in the sense that they are now, um, in that they were either in the European context, for the most part, nationalised uh, and vertically integrated. And in the States, uh, they were privately owned, but, but also vertically integrated, tightly regulated uh, monopolies. Um, the idea of a merit order uh, um, was uh, an economic concept that was uh, that was created in order to uh, make sure that those monopolies were running their generation plant in the most economically optimal way. Uh, if you look around the world, some countries still don't actually use a merit order. They they operate according to quotas, um, to according to whether or not a particular region uh, needs to be uh, given you know revenues by running their coal plants, for example as historically has been the case in China. But the idea of a merit order is pretty simple, really. You run your cheapest plants first. So if you've got some plants with uh, zero marginal costs, run them all the time. And then you run a power station that's very efficient, like a brand new gas or coal station all of the time. And then you run your most high marginal cost plants least. And when we... Um, in, in, in Britain as one of the leaders, uh, moved to privatise and liberalise our markets. We, we designed a market structure that effectively ensured that that economically rational dispatch model was, was translated into the new market arrangements. So initially we had a central purchasing agency took over the role of the monopoly utility and ran bids and auctions in order to invite power stations to, to, to run at particular times of the day. And the market has changed a number of times since then. And I don't think we really have time to go into the detail of that. But the fundamentals still underpin it, which is you, you, you have some form of market that, that, that gives you economically rational dispatch that meet demand uh, at every instant of the day, running your cheapest plants first. You did talk about why we have the merit order and running cheap plants ahead of expensive plants, of course, is quite intuitive. What might be less intuitive is uh, why you would let the most expensive plants set the price for everyone uh, and not try to capture some of that infra inframarginal rent. Yeah, so I think that's really interesting. So if you were to, I'll give you the GB market, the, the UK market instance. If you go back to the 1980s, 80% uh, of our electricity came from coal. Uh, most of that coal was domestically produced. 20% of our electricity came from nuclear. So our principal preoccupation at that time was uh, time of day and time of year economic operation of the system. We weren't thinking about wider geopolitical factors very, very hard. Okay, We didn't really need to. We just needed to make sure that we ran the most efficient plant at the most efficient time. So when we privatised and moved to a market-based system with private operators, um, we just translated what we've been doing across into that market context. And we still didn't really need to worry about things like, well, maybe there'll be a mega trend in the price of gas, which will overwhelm everything else, uh, which is what we're what we're seeing at the moment. So it made complete sense to have a, um, a system whereby you pay the marginal price to the marginal generation plant. Um, and that makes make sure that, you know, that we have an economically efficient way of getting electricity generated uh, for consumers. Um, as I said uh, earlier, that starts to break down or starts to become more problematic 
once you start having lots and lots of zero marginal cost generators on the system. And whether or not that kind of way of structuring prices is fundamentally broken, we'll, we'll come on to uh, discuss. I'm not, I'm not convinced it necessarily is, um, but, they, but it's very clear that in extreme circumstances, it leads to extreme outcomes that weren't really anticipated or perhaps given huge priority when the market was first being set up and designed. Okay, thank you very much, Rob. Leon, you've also looked at this um, across markets and across commodities. Uh, so could, could, you, could you talk uh, to us a little bit about whether what we're doing in, in power with the merit order, uh, with, uh, with pay is clear pricing, is in any way uh, particular to power markets uh, or whether there's some from more fundamental principles at, uh, at stake here? Love to do so. Um, so if you listen to the public policy debate and if you listen to, say, uh, Ursula von der Leyen, the head of the European Commission, explaining this in the front of the European Parliament, uh, which happened just two months ago, you get the impression that marginal pricing is something pretty weird, that some weirders have come up with at the power exchange or in, in energy economics research departments and invented a principle that applies to electricity that is producing strange results. But that's quite untrue. Marginal pricing or, or pay is cleared or uniform pricing, as it's sometimes called, is not an artificial way of organizing electricity markets. It's, it's really the natural way of how prices are formed, of how prices emerge in free economies, in all markets, in all commodities. You could say that commodities price on the margin and so does electricity. To bring this message home, let me, let me point a, a simple example um, from the wheat market. Let's imagine there's two farmers, one a very modern and mechanized farm with low production costs that can produce wheat for $2 per bushel. Um, and another a traditional uh, farm with loads of expensive manual labor that yields in production costs of 10. And both farms, the output of both farms is required to meet the demand for wheat. So the more expensive farm will not sell below $10 because otherwise the farm would make a loss. The cheaper farm, however, is observing this and it knows it can sell for 10 because that's what the neighbors do. So why should that second farm sell at anything below 10? It won't. In other words, there will be a uniform price before, because the, the goods that, that these farms produce is uniform. It's the same wheat on both, uh, on both sides. And that price will be determined by the cost of the marginal producer. And that's very same thing for electricity. That's exactly how electricity prices um, uh, and how electricity markets price production. Uh, and that's not the idea, but this is more a description of how individual decisions lead uh, to certain market outcomes. And it's more a, a way of explaining how prices emerge than a sort of an invention by some central entity, government or power exchange. There is a crucial difference, of course. Um, electricity cannot be stored. It cannot be stored economically. Uh, and that's very different to wheat. That means where the wheat price is relatively stable, for example, within the day or within the week, wheat is, is roughly priced the same. That's very different to electricity, where on spot markets, we, we see wide fluctuations and, and wholesale markets may price electricity on a, on a cold night um, 10 times, 100 times higher than the same, same day uh, during midday when there was a lot of solar generation. Excellent. Thank you very much, Leon. Okay, we've now talked a lot about why we are where we are and why we have the system that we have. Um, so let's talk about how 
we might change it. And there's a lot of proposals on the table. And I, I would like to uh, talk through some of the most prominent ones with the two of you. Why don't we start with the idea of splitting markets for renewables and uh, and conventional generation this is this is an idea that uh, that was uh, voiced uh, in the recent uk government publication the the review of electricity market arrangements uh, the greek uh, government made a similar proposal um, within the eu market design debate rob can you take us through uh, what the idea here is um, and how this might help us with the current situation or whether it would even help us Yes, I mean, I think one of the thing, first things to say is there's there are different formulations of of, of this idea of a, of a of a split market. Um, perhaps the most uh, the most pure formulation of it would be um, consumers could choose how reliable they want their electricity to be, or uh, what kind of share of, of, of variable renewables uh, they they directly or through an intermediary. Uh, contract or whether or not that could ever be made to, to work in practice we could have a, a discussion about particularly if, if we're talking about consumers down to the household level um, because there's system operation challenges that are associated with that and also kind of social and equity issues that would follow from it that, that could be quite significant and profound uh, but more restricted versions of it would be that perhaps you run two power uh, market wholesale market pools, for example, that the renewables go into one, and that the firm power generators, uh, conventional generators or hydro, uh, would go into another, uh, and that those markets might be allowed to clear uh, separately. Um, I'd add, though, that in some respects we already have uh, de facto uh, split market, insofar as we have already put in place provisional special arrangements for renewables generators over. The last 20 years or so, for example, through, through the provision of feed-in tariffs or priority access, which means that they get to run whenever it's windy or, 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 or sunny and the rest of the market has to compensate for them. Um, in the GB market context, we have these things called contracts for difference, which effectively uh, offers a long-run fixed price, uh, the renewables uh, generators and, and a new nuclear plant, which is yet to be completed, but when operational, will also get a contract for difference where they receive a guaranteed strike price. So that's often uh, discussed separately from the split market concept, but in some respects, it has many of the same characteristics. It is, in fact, an intervention that delivers you a very, very similar outcome uh, to a split market, insofar as some of your generation assets get paid on a, effectively on an average cost rather than a marginal price basis. Um, but that, I think, is where these ideas of splitting the market are, um, are trying, where they're trying to go, um, is this idea that some generators could be paid in a different, in, to use Leon's example, you know, one of the farms sells all their wheat ahead. And because there's no forward market from the local customers, the government or a government entity steps in and says, well, we'll buy all of your wheat. For 10 years at a fixed price. So I would say my view is the fundamentals of an entirely new formulation of some kind of split market, dual market, a wholesale market for variable renewables and a different one for fossil fuel generators. We haven't figured out how we might do that. The detail of that is absent in my view from the, uh, from the debate. Whether or not that could really be made to work remains to be seen. We certainly 
in my view. Uh, can't do that in a hurry. Uh, it would need some to be thought through very, very carefully. But there are things that we could potentially do much more quickly that would reduce the amount of over-remuneration of, of some of these cheaper forms of generation as an emergency measure during the next however long it is that gas prices are in crisis. Let's talk about that. So um, uh, you view splitting the market however it might work, and I, I completely echo your your questions here about uh, uh, yeah uh, how would it actually be different from long-term uh, symmetric CFDs? Um, and uh, I mean, there's a question about how price formation in this renewable market would even work because you'll have lots of uh, lots of zero marginal cost uh, generators uh, competing there. But those questions aside, it's it's probably not something that will help us a lot over the next winter so um what what would be shorter term things that could be done in that direction Hans, if i if i if i may i would um share my short views on on the on one specific proposals of market split uh, the proposal that was um, put forward by the greek government in form of a non-paper that made it up to the um agenda of the uh, european energy council last month in very brief terms, um, the Greek government proposes to lump renewables, nuclear, and fossil cogeneration together to a pool, and that pool is supposed to be dispatched proportionately to demand. So they all go uh, hand in hand, and if demand is, is low, then, then all these generators are dispatched down in, in, in some sort of central dispatch. Consumers in this setup would pay a mix of the average cost of LCOE of that production pool and the marginal cost of the rest of, of essentially fossil generation. That, uh, in my view, is not the short-term crisis measure that it, that it was presented. Um, it's certainly not. It's nothing that we can implement in months or, or even one year. Um, it, yeah. it would mean a fundamental change in the way we operate electricity systems and coordinate production and consumption. But let me still point out two, what I believe being two out of many, many um, big concerns that I have with this proposal. First, that specific proposal would yield a hugely inefficient dispatch. I imagine um, we have a lot of wind, a lot of solar, and cogeneration. And the proposal means we would dispatch down wind, fossil coal generation, nuclear, and solar all proportionately because there's there's little demand. So essentially, there wouldn't be any preference according to cost or according to um, carbon intensity um, in this very heterogeneous pool of generators. The second um, issue that I see here um, is that consumers really get very strange price signals. Essentially, you always pay the average cost of this huge pool of generators. That means consumption prices, prices paid by consumers never go down a lot um, and are always um, sort of um, leveled quite a bit. That means where is the incentive for smart dispatch of EV, of heat pumps, of industry? Um, essentially, that's the idea of having a very supply-focused energy system where we really, we've been working for the last decade um, to, uh, to make demand flexible, and that would pretty much be the end of that story. I'm not saying that any market split proposal has that specific same problem, uh, but, but the one that was published as a non-paper, to the extent that I understood it correctly, certainly does. 
Okay, thank you very much, Leon. So again, um, again, even if these issues could be could be sorted out, it's nothing for it's nothing for next winter, um, and uh, uh, it's it's questionable whether uh, whether it would be an uh, an effective and efficient solution for the for the longer term as well. So let's talk about the shorter term or what could be done for next winter. Uh, Rob, you mentioned you had some some ideas there. Yeah, thanks, Anne. I mean, what what we put into the conversation here in 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 the UK, and I, I have seen this picked up um, across uh, Europe more widely. Um, we we wrote a little paper. Uh, this is UKIRK. Uh, we wrote it really quickly uh, in April, um, and the idea that we had is that although in the GB market we have these contracts for difference, uh, they were uh, created uh, through an electricity market reform package back in 2013. We've been running uh, auctions for, for new uh, offshore wind farms, for example. And as I mentioned, we've got a contract for uh, a new nuclear power station, but that hasn't been built yet. Um, the result of that is because it's relatively recent, we've only got about six gigawatts of generation that's under a CFD at the moment. All of that uh, generation at the moment is as being paid below market price. And uh, the difference between their contracted strike price and the wholesale market price, which they still sell their electricity at, they pay back to an entity called the Low Carbon Contracts Company, which is a government-owned entity, and that's passed back through to suppliers. So they're doing a little bit to hold consumer prices down as long as the suppliers are passing those uh, those kind of uh, paybacks or those, those price reductions through to consumers. Whether they are or not, we could have a conversation about but our idea essentially was to offer on a voluntary basis, um, rather than a kind of mandatory retroactive rule change, which could be perceived as being illegal, it would be, and um, quite bad for, for future investment. Could we run a voluntary CFD auction for existing, uh, pre-existing renewables and nuclear plants that are not currently under the CFD? Most of our renewables fleet is in receipt of what's called a renewables obligation payment, which was originally a certificate trading scheme. That's now closed. Uh, the government is transitioning that so that it takes the form of a feed-in tariff, a premium feed-in tariff. Um, and it made sense in many countries to provide renewables with a subsidy in the past when renewables were expensive and finance needed to be raised on expensive, relatively new technologies. And when wholesale prices were relatively low and in current terms, very low and stable. So we gave them a kind of premium payment. Our idea would be that, that, that um, uh, nuclear and renewables generators could opt into uh, this voluntary CFD arrangement. The upside for them would be that they get a long term stable uh, price, uh, which might enable them to do things like invest in, um, in, in repowering. Uh, would protect them from the risk, which seems a bit, you know, strange to be worrying about now, but there still will be a risk from an investor perspective that um, the power prices revert to mean and that its, its power prices are always low on windy days and that existing wind farms, for example, might, uh, might find it difficult to stay operational in the future. So in return for a long-term contract, they would enter into an arrangement in time for this winter using existing uh, regulatory arrangements that are already in place that would help to reduce prices. And we worked out what the implications for consumers might be. And it, potentially it's, it's significant, you know, potentially 
uh, a hundreds of pounds per year reduction in the household bill. This was an idea. We, we're academics. We float ideas. Can I ask you something? Because I think that's that's a great um, it's a great proposal, and I very much love the idea to to first explore all voluntary measures before we be introduced coercive policies and and force people uh, to do some stuff that might be end up in in court and and be unconstitutional in the long term. So so voluntary is good, but companies in your proposal will only agree to sign a new CFD if they recover or if they expect to recover later what they now pay in the short term, right? Because they are profit maximizers. Or at least if, 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 it's, if, if they get something back that it's, it's similar in size, let's be very conservative. So doesn't that essentially mean we are lending money from energy, energy firms? It might do. I understand the point uh, that you're making. Well, there's so many different factors here that we probably we can't even get into the detail of it. We know that there are very high wholesale prices at the moment, and we know that that's above the, what was expected in order to, to to kind of make payments on on any finance that have been raised against, I say, a wind farm, operational costs, transmission and distribution costs. So we know that the wholesale price is way above that level now. What we don't know, because quite a lot of this is, is, is in the detail of commercially sensitive contracts, is exactly who within the various array of market participants is benefiting from that very high price. Those, those generators might already have sold their, their output ahead uh, to a supplier and maybe they're vertically integrated. Maybe their supplier business is making money. Maybe the generators themselves are on the, on the spot market um, and they're making money. I think that what they would need to see is a, a level of um, risk balancing. So yes, there's no question at the moment, the sun is out, it's very bright, and they're making hay. They're making you know, big returns. Somebody in the market is making big returns. And if they were to forego that, then they would need to be given some kind of recompense into the long term. But the recompense that they're potentially being offered into the long term is not that they need to make all of the profits that they might otherwise have made in the next um, two or three years, uh, but they're getting a long-term stable contract uh, that might enable them to refinance their assets at a lower cost of borrowing, might, as I've said, allow them to invest in, in repowering their assets because they have to do a forward projection of what they think prices will be. At the moment, most of the analysis is still saying that, that, that prices will revert to, to trend and to mean. And so, there's a trade-off for them, but I don't think it's necessarily quite as straightforward as a transfer payment from the present to the future that means that future prices will be higher than they than they might otherwise have been. It's, it's a bit more complicated than that. There's probably a point about cost of capital there as well, right? Because yeah. if you can if you can refinance and you've got the like you've got the 10 year or whatever it is uh, certainty of a government offtake, you might not need an equivalent cash transfer to view that as equivalent. Yeah. That's right. I mean, there's a conversation, separate conversation at the moment around what are called evergreen CFDs. So the thing about a CFD is a, for a renewables scheme, it's a 15-year contract. The old renewables obligation contracts were 20-year contracts. Um, because we've been building out renewables since the early 2000s, quite a large number of generators will be coming to the end of those contracts. So this might have the potential to offer them stable revenues for a longer period into the future and offset some of the uncertainty uh, that they would be facing. Um, but to the extent to which Leon is, is right, to the extent to which there might be a trade-off between getting prices down now 
and not having quite such low prices at some point in the future, I think the question has to be, do we want to, do we want to make that trade-off? You know, do we want a fixed price mortgage, as it were, uh, at a time when interest rates are going up? And maybe we do. Um, and that's a very difficult uh, political decision that needs to be made. And, and I have to say, I mean, I'm, I'm jumping topics here, but this is something that could be implemented. I think it's, it's potentially, in principle, implementable. Um, I think that um, any kind of um, windfall tax in the electricity market is very difficult to implement because it's quite hard to know where the profits are being made because there are multiple players, retailers, intermediaries, generators, vertically integrated companies and so on. Leon, is, is, are these kind of uh, recontracting of renewables um, uh, in symmetric CFDs, is that, is that a topic you see gaining traction in, uh, in the EU or in Germany? In that specific case, I can't talk much about, about the EU, but I can talk about Germany, and certainly it does. Um, I mean, our situation is, in, in that specific question, much more much more complicated than the UK situation. The UK has introduced, it, introduced contracts for difference, I think, in 2014 for most generation, and that means... Everyone, every, all the renewables that were built under that subsidy scheme since then, they are now paying back money. And essentially, to that extent, consumers are hatched. Now, Germany did install a, a quite different scheme that sometimes a bit confusingly is called a one-sided or single-sided CFD. Germans call this the market premium. And that system is, is not a symmetric risk-sharing agreement. Rather, if prices are low, generators get a subsidy. If prices are high, generators keep the upside. And that was by design, and there's good reasons to do this. But of course, no one ever expected a price crisis of this size when designing that support scheme. And as a consequence, renewable generators that were shielded from market risk uh, through um, um, federal policy now really bring home coffers of cash. And of course, the proposal that, that you outlined, uh, Rob, um, offering them on a, on a voluntary basis a CFD that they can enter is one way of tapping into that cash. I would argue that's mostly an, an sort of an, an, an intertemporal trade, right? We are getting some of that cash today and paying them back later. And you might make the argument that this is essentially a pretty costly way of public lending. And there's better ways of doing this because governments can, at, at least the German government can issue bonds at, at very low interest rates. Um, but I do, I do see all your points. And that's something that We've actually been discussing and, and thinking through uh, as, as a research and advising community uh, over the past weeks. Um, uh, it's not clear if that, that will come to light. Uh, there's so many proposals floating uh, that, it, that it's hard to see what will make it in the end. Um, but what I like about the proposal is it can be one piece of the puzzle, right? If it's voluntary, really, it, it's, it's doing a lot less damage than all the obligatory measures. So um, I, I do see the benefits of, of maybe offering this and then see how the market responds. You both mentioned other, uh, other proposals that are floating. There's two that I would uh, like to bring to the table, and uh, you may have others you want to discuss. Uh, the two that I would see value in, uh, in discussing for a bit uh, is, on the one hand, uh, capping gas prices for the power sector, um, as Spain has done. 
And then uh, this whole discussion about windfall uh, taxes, uh, which which Rob brought up. Leon, do you want to start on uh, on gas price caps? Um, how that might work? How it's how it's supposed to address the uh, the current problems, and whether you see that working. Happy to do so. Um, so. Some of our listeners might have seen that um, that that we've published something ahead of the introduction in April, and and you might remember we've been pretty critical about that measure. Um, and there's more analysis coming up next week from our end. So we've looked into this quite quite in depth. Um, I don't like to call this a cap on gas because it's not it's not an administrative cap on the price of gas like 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 other people have suggested. Rather, I see it as a subsidy for fossil generator with the intention to reduce the the variable cost of production and hence lower the the price on spot markets for electricity. And that's that subsidy is then uh, financed through a new tax or technically is it's a levy on electricity consumption. So you essentially take away money from electricity consumers, you give it to um, to fossil generators. But because fossil generators only concern um, a little bit of generation, that essentially means you're taking away money from the inframarginal generators, from renewables, from nuclear, from coal, and redistribute that money to consumers. So if things go right, the net benefit to consumers is still positive. That proposal is, or that that it's it's actually implemented since uh, mid June, so it's not a proposal. It's a policy. Has many problems. It causes increased export, so it causes leakage. It increases gas consumption, so it drives up the gas price. But let's ignore those problems for a second and focus on something that that I think is really important for the broader European context. And and because Rob mentioned it, the whole idea of the Spanish Portuguese policy is that that it's spot markets, it's short term day ahead markets that matter. This is seen as the centerpiece of the electricity market, and this is where the policy focuses on. But reality is there is huge markets for future uh, and forward contracts. So typically, conventional generators sell energy one, two, three, four, sometimes five years ahead of production through financial forwards and future contracts. In other words, they hatch. So picture the case of a coal plant that has sold all of its outputs through a financial forward. That plant is completely indifferent to the spot price. If spot prices go up, spot prices go down, their profits are locked in. They don't care. But in the Spanish proposal, they still get the subsidy. They're still subsidized in order to change their spot market behavior. Rather than taking away windfall profits from these coal plants, that policy would create a new windfall for a hedged coal generator. And that's certainly not what we what we want to do. Um, so the bottom line of, of this is when we think about wholesale market intervention, we need to take future markets serious. We can't stop um, at, at spot markets. We need to take into account that most generators and most retail suppliers are hatched and, and have locked in prices uh, one, two, three, four years uh, ahead of time. So plenty of plenty of issues with that uh, around um, efficiency of um, uh, the the demand side uh, responding, but also uh, uh, additional windfall profits in the futures markets. Um, Rob, do you have any views on the Spanish model? Rather than focusing on the, the specifics of the Spanish proposal, I think I'll just make a few general observations. The first is, I completely agree that there will be some unintended consequences and some distortionary impacts. Almost anything that you could imagine doing uh, to, to intervene in a wholesale market will have unintended consequences. The, the contracts for difference have had unintended consequences. Uh, liberalization itself um, has unintended, uh, unenvisaged consequences, such 
such as the dash for gas during the 1990s, which nobody foresaw. Um, but this does have a political and macroeconomic overlay that I don't think that we should uh, neglect in our conversation. So, for example, in most countries, electricity prices will turn up in the consumer price index, uh, which is used to calculate headline inflation. And so there's a there's a strong uh, incentive on, on governments to try and push electricity prices down because that will help to hold uh, inflation down. And when they look at the tools that they've got to kind of control inflationary pressure, they can see uh, with a bit of analysis, well, maybe we could intervene in the wholesale electricity market. Maybe we could have a negotiated agreement with generators like they've been effectively done in France. Maybe we could cap wholesale prices um, as they've effectively done on the Iberian Peninsula. We've had the experience in the, in the British market during last winter that a downstream price cap, a price cap on retailers, does not work uh, in, these, uh, in these circumstances. Suppliers just go bust, particularly the ones that aren't hedged uh, to come back to, uh, to one of Leon's uh, points. So governments understandably will be looking at what they can do. And I think also understandably, they will be more nervous about massive fiscal transfers uh, in order to help consumers, because that's the obvious way of, of, of fixing this. It's just we say, OK, this is unprecedented. There's a war in Europe. Uh, we're going to give all of the poorer consumers 2,000 euros to pay their electricity bills. And, and governments are doing that to a certain extent. Um, but I think it's very understandable that they, they look to do other things and that perhaps they care less at the highest political level about the distortionary impact of um, meddling about in electricity markets than they do about the fact that it might take uh, one percentage point off the headline inflation rate. So we need to come to the end of the podcast, but uh, I but before doing so, um, I, I would like to uh, briefly discuss uh, windfall taxes, um, um, which could provide the funding for some of the transfers, which uh, which you which you mentioned, Rob, which are already taking place, but which will have to be scaled up massively across Europe over over the winter. Otherwise, I think a lot of consumers uh, won't be able to cope. Uh, Leo and Rob, any any parting thoughts on uh, on windfall taxes? So I can share my, my view on this. Um, and so when I say windfall taxes, also that term is used in very different ways in the debate. When I say windfall profit taxes, I, I do mean profit taxes on firm profits, right? So, so that's essentially really more a topic. Um, I, I'm not an expert on this. Essentially, that's, that's then, that's then a fi public finance and, and tax law and income, uh, corporate income taxation that really is concerned and, and less energy markets. Still, I want to share my view as an energy market person that um, markets fulfill all kinds of pro purposes, in particular, allocate resources in, a, in an efficient way, both short-term and long-term. And if you want to take away profits, then the right place, the right way to do this is use the corporate tax system and not mingle with wholesale markets and not, not try to disturb prices in a way that reduces profits, rather increase the corporate tax rate specific to that sector. So I'm, um, while, while I do see um, a number of problems uh, and maybe a, a, a tax lawyer would be even more critical than I am, I do think um, uh, windfall profit taxes make much more sense than interfering with wholesale markets. Thank you, Leon. Would you agree, Rob? Uh, I would agree in terms of um, economic theory. Uh, I think it's the, the, the political context is, is, is a bit more complicated. And also, I think um, pragmatically, 
it's quite tricky when it's, it's hard to know within some of these uh, entities within the electricity market exactly who's making how much profit, uh, particularly for vertically integrated companies. And also in the specifics of the GB market, when we've had a number of suppliers that went bust during the course of, uh, of last winter as a result of the, the retail market price cap. So um, I suppose pragmatically, uh, windfall, windfall taxes in some political contexts are, are very difficult. I think uh, in, in our context in, in, in Britain, we've got a right-wing, quite populist government. It doesn't like the idea of tax, you know, full stop. Um, and so, so it's tricky. It has a political overlay. Uh, all of the points of principle that Leon makes are, are, are completely right. Uh, and in a way, I'll just come back to my, my, my previous answer that uh, I think it's, in many respects, it's the high politics of this that, that, that count at the moment. Um, and I think my final observation would be that whether it's a windfall tax, whether it's an intervention temporary or permanent um, in, the, in, in, the, in the wholesale market for electricity, um, history teaches us that when we're in a time of, you know, of, of war, uh, the role of governments becomes much more profound and interventionist. And there is a war in Europe. Uh, and hopefully that, that, that will be a conflict which is which not very long lived, doesn't escalate and, and everything will come back to normal. I mean, that's what we what we all want. Uh, but we we should expect governments to be prepared to do things that otherwise that they wouldn't have countenanced. I'd say certainly pre-COVID, perhaps even a year ago. No, absolutely. Um, and I think that's why we're having this discussion, which unfortunately now has to come to an end. I thought it was fascinating. Thank you very much uh, for joining and for sharing your thoughts on this. Um, what I'm taking from it uh, is that uh, it's it's complicated. Um, and to quote Rob, any policy will have unintended consequences. My takeaway from this discussion uh, is that we should be very careful about making very drastic changes to respond to an emergency uh, without having had time to think about uh, these consequences very carefully. Uh, but clearly, there's there's a lot of pressure uh, to do something, um, and anything may look uh, more attractive than the than the status quo, which may in the longer term actually not be the case. Thank you very much for joining us, uh, Rob, and thank you very much for joining us, Leon. Uh, it's been a pleasure discussing with you, um, and uh, let's stay in touch. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. That was great fun. That was Hans Koenig, Head of Commission Projects for Central Europe at Aurora, talking to Leon Hilt, Professor of Energy Policy at the Hertie School in Berlin, and Robert Gross, Director at Ukirk and Professor of Energy Policy at Imperial College London. Do keep an eye on our podcast feed for more in-depth conversations with senior members of the energy industry. The best way to do this is to subscribe on whatever platform you use. Thanks for listening and goodbye.